to the war from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, send it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Well, we're going to go back to the quick and the dead. The original air date, July 13th, 1950. The title of the episode, Mr. Hope and the Atom Bomb. The conversation continues uh, pretty much where it left off yesterday without any introduction. So here now is Bob Hope and William Lawrence of the New York Times. At Stagfield, Chicago, our scientists put enough pure uranium together to get a chain reaction going. A chain reaction meant that an atomic explosion was a distinct possibility. Is that right, Bill? That's right, Bob. Okay, let's get on with the bomb. In the heart of the Tennessee Valley Authority, between the Smokies and the Cumberland Mountains, is Oak Ridge. The local inhabitants working the worn out land using methods of the past were suddenly projected into the 21st century. My job was security. They called us the creeps. That's Colonel Bill Considine. At Oak Ridge, we had to build magnets each one about half the size of a city block. We needed copper, almost unlimited copper, with which to wind these magnets. And with the war on, there just wasn't that much copper in the world. Silver, as you know, is just as good or even better a conductor of electricity as copper. So we called the mint in Washington and borrowed $400 million worth of silver to wind the magnets with. We moved the silver by flat car, and to this day, those magnets at Oak Ridge are still wound with silver. We used to call it the sub-treasury. It was the best use any silver was ever put to. Oh, that's a great story, Bill, but what exactly were they doing at Oak Ridge? Was that the atom bomb factory? No, Bob. The actual factory was at Los Alamos. Oak Ridge was the source of pure uranium. General Motors, for example makes cars in Detroit, where they get their steel from Pittsburgh. Oak Ridge had the enormous task of taking the raw uranium and turning it into usable 235 and then shipping it to the factory at Los Alamos to be fabricated into bombs. All right, Bill, we were on our way. What was holding up the show? We can do anything in America, can't we? Anything but outwit the sheer cussedness of nature. What happened? They suddenly discovered that you can't split all uranium. Only a special kind. Uranium-235. So, what's the problem? Let's get some uranium-235. That was the rub. Uranium comes out of the mines mixed with other ores. Black, dirty, and contaminated. Uranium-235 and uranium-238 come together. They're twins, just like Twiddledum and Twiddledee. Shaped alike, look alike, and they go together. They are inseparable. Oh, now let me get that. Get this. The scientists discovered that we could use only the lighter one. Only the uranium-235. But you said they couldn't be separated. That was why Oak Ridge was built. To do just that job. To get enough pounds of uranium-235 without 238 in it. When we could get a few pounds of that, we could assemble a bomb. 
Well, is that where the big magnets come in? Exactly, Bob. That's why we had to borrow the $400 million worth of silver. At Oak Ridge, General Groves tried Professor Ernest Lawrence's magnetic method, and they also set up a gaseous diffusion method under Professor Dunning of Columbia. If either worked, we would have a bomb. But even that wasn't enough insurance. A third plant was set up at Hanford in the state of Washington. For making sure we had enough uranium for an atom bomb. I didn't. I said material. At Hanford, they were not making uranium, but plutonium. Uh-uh. More physics. Go ahead. Take 60 seconds. I can do it in 30, Bob. Is it a derivative of uranium? Of the precious kind, or can you use the wet kind, the U-238? 238. The kind we have most of, thank the Lord. Professor McMillan, just a youngster, discovered that plutonium also might be used in a bomb. Plutonium is the first element man ever learned to make himself. And add one neutron, and it becomes Neptunium. Then what do you do? Nothing. And in about three days, Neptunium turns into Plutonium. Just like cider, turning into Vinheimer. I thought he was one of the big shots in this story. He was, Mr. Hope. But his time had not yet arrived, called him. We're setting up the factory for assembling the bomb at Los Alamos. But in 1943 and 1944, it was still all on paper. Six for guns. There still wasn't enough uranium-235 or plutonium to put together a bomb. And still the millions kept going out. That's right. This remained a complete secret. Those at Oak Ridge didn't know there was a Hanford. Hanford didn't know about Los Alamos. In June of 1944, and the war seemed to be passing them by. General Dwight D. Eisenhower, people... A landing was made this morning on the coast of France by troops of the Allied Expedition. This landing is part of the concerted United Nations plan for the liberation of Europe. And in June of 1944, Romeo Plutonium was shipped to Los Alamos, a special B-29 fated. Its leader, Colonel Paul Tibbets, age 29. 509th and to Wendover Field. As you know, this is a... I wish I could tell you something. And train and train. Someday you will all know why. Professor Oppenheimer and his boys waited for the first purified uranium. And from now on, Bob, when I say uranium, I mean uranium or plutonium. Both were early in 1945, the first cubes, like cubes of sugar. I was a courier must have made 30 trips from Oak Ridge to Los Alamos. Never knew what it was I carried in a case strapped to my wrist. Sometimes I went by plane, sometimes by special car, sometimes by train. Bomb that I knew what I was carrying. I was one of Oppie's boys. Watched the wizard of Los Alamos do his job. This was the inner sanctum of the whole deal. Our job was the easiest to explain and the hardest to do. To make a bomb, you simply take some uranium, as pure as possible, and slap two pieces together as quickly as possible. 
That much we things we didn't know. One, how much do you have to bring together, a pound or a hundred pounds? We call that the critical mass. Two, how to design a container and a trigger mechanism to bring the two hunks of uranium together over the target. And three, how do you hold the two hunks together long enough to get a real explosion and not just a dud? Oh, now, wait a minute. Hold everything, Bill. What does he mean, hold the bomb together? I thought we wanted to blow it up. That's right, Bob. But a big problem was this. You slapped the two pieces of uranium together, like that. We split an atom, and that starts that chain reaction they've been talking about. That's right, and we have an atomic bomb. Correct. But if you may, just listen to this. We call our job at Los Alamos extending the generations. The two pieces of uranium come together, there's a chain reaction, they fly apart, and there is an explosion which takes one millionth of a second. Get that. One... But such an explosion would give us a force equal to OT, and you can get that from any ordinary blockbuster. So, what's the point? We can't spend two billion dollars just for a blockbuster. We had those already. Listen. We knew, however that for every tenth of a millionth of a second more that you can hold those two hunks together, you increase the power of the bomb by 1,000. At Los Alamos, we learned a way to hold it together for that tenth of a millionth of a second longer. And we put together a bomb that could do the work of 20,000 tons of TNT. And that timing business is the payoff. Exactly, Bob. The longer you can hold the two pieces of uranium together, the more efficient a bomb you get. There can be no bigger bombs than those built at the Salamars. All you can do to improve the bomb is to... I know, I know. Prolong that millionth of a second that you hold them together. You astound me, Bob. Absolutely correct. Finally, on July 16, 1945, Los Alamos had enough uranium to make a final test, and the first atom bomb was tested. All that remained now was to slap these two pieces of uranium together over an enemy target. Meantime, uranium was rushed to the cruiser Indianapolis which hoisted anchor and sailed for Tinian on the very same day as the Los Alamos explosion. Other bomb material, not yet ready, went in three heavy bombers, whose pilots were unaware of their cargo. At Potsdam, Germany, couriers brought the news to Truman and Churchill, who told Stalin. On August 5th, the weather reports were favorable. Colonel Tibbetts, was finally able to brief his boys. Well, boys, tonight is the night we've all been waiting for. The bomb we're going to drop is different from any that you've ever heard about. It contains a destructive force equal to 20,000 tons of TNT. Three planes will fly the mission. The Enola Gay to carry the bomb. The primary target is Hiroshima. That same day, an important change was made in the plan of operations. Some of the Los Alamos scientists and Captain Dick Parsons 
whose job it was to load the bomb and set the delicate mechanisms, watched several B-29s crash in takeoff. Parsons went to General Farrell and said, General, some of our scientists are quite worried about the possibility of a crash on takeoff with a bomb on board. So, Deke, if that happens, we lose the plane, the crew, the bomb, you and the whole darn island. You just pray that that doesn't happen. Well, it couldn't happen if I made the final assembly of the bomb in the bomb bay after we take off. Deke, have you ever done a final assembly like that before? No, but I've got all day to practice. You mean when that plane left Tinian, the bomb wasn't all set? No. And don't think we didn't think of that as we watched the Enola Gay take off and head for Hiroshima. As soon as the mission was airborne, we raced to the communications center where we could talk with Colonel Tibbs by radio and ask how Parsons was getting on with his assembly job. When we lost contact with the Enola Gay, he was still out in the Bombay, his skilled fingers working on the delicate trigger mechanism. I looked down at my hands. They were dirty, greasy hands, just as if I had fixed the carburetor and distributor in my car. Bob Lewis, the plane's co-pilot, kept the log of the mission, a priceless document. It is 7.30. Parsons has put the final touches on his assembly job. We are now loaded. The bomb is alive. We start to climb to our final altitude at 7.40. Won't be long now. We have now set the automatic pilot for the last time until bombs away. Now it is 8.30. Dick Nelson, our radio operator, has just received a report from one of our weather planes. Hiroshima, our primary target, is clear. We are now ready for the final bomb run. It is 8.50. Not long now. There will be a short intermission now while we bomb our target. Tom Farabee, Bombardier. The Enola Gay had a four-minute run over the perfectly open target. I manipulated the crosshairs of the bomb site until the target was at the intersection of the... The great Bombay door swung open. I synchronized and let go. The inert mass, suspended in the interior, came to life, freed itself, leaped out. Still, the two hunks of uranium were at opposite ends of the bomb. Down it hurtled. Eternal seconds passed. It was exactly 9.15. Those inside the plane... Watched for a signal. Like a tiny light on a switchboard. A little pinpoint of purplish red light. Oppenheimer's trigger had slapped the two hunks of uranium together and held them so for that tenth of a millionth of a second. The blue-white flash immediately grew into a giant ball of fire a half mile in diameter. One of Fermi's neutrons had entered one atom. One atom had forced two neutrons into two more atoms, which gave forth four neutrons in a chain reaction. Tubes 
smashed by two billion trillion neutrons in that split, split, split second. The mushroom top was a seething, turbulent cloud, which by now was almost at our height. When the blast arrived, we felt the shock waves. There were two short shocks, about two seconds apart. It felt like several flak bursts right under the wings. The bomb did its damage in three ways. First, by blast. My name is Kleinzorger. I am a Jesuit priest. My mission was in Hiroshima, 1,400 yards from the bomb center. It felt as though the bomb had fallen directly on us. It reminded me of something I had read as a boy, a large meteor colliding with the Earth. The blast effect alone was equal to 20,000 tons of TNT. Then there was the fire effect. Time, and more than 2,000 yards from the target center. I heard nothing, but when I looked up, I saw a sheet of fire, very, very, like a great big sun. For that split second, it was like a sun. 50 million degrees centigrade, three times hotter than the center of the sun. But there was a third kind of death from the bomb, radiation. I were 2,000 yards away. My sister seemed quite normal during and after the blast, but we sick and suddenly died. Doctor said it was radiation. We think of radiation as the rays you get from radium of radium in all the world, where the radiation effect of Hiroshima was equal to several million tons of radium. Bill, I'm staggered and bewildered by the whole thing, by just a few pounds of uranium being banged together. Yes, Bob, but here is another fantastic point. The Hiroshima effective. Less than one gram of uranium, weighing less than one dime, actually was split and went into action. 78,000 people died at Hiroshima. The president? The World War note was dropped on Hiroshima, a military base. We won the race of discovery against the Germans. Welcome back. And so we have the technical picture of what went on with the Enola Gay and the dropping of the first atomic bomb. The decision to use atomic weapons in war remains a controversial one, with some saying it was the wrong thing to do, and others saying that it was the right decision, even though it was a tragic one. I think it's important, when judging these events, to keep in mind the uh, real choices that lay before the big three at this point and uh, President Truman in particular. Uh, a negotiated peace was not an option for the United States. It wasn't an option for basically any of the Allies. If the war ended with Japan driven from many of the territories it had taken, but still in a position to come back and attack, it would be a betrayal of the Allies. 
and would make much of the fighting seem to be somewhat pointless, particularly for those who could be menaced by a resurgent Japan. A conventional invasion of uh, Japan would be a very long slog. And I think the Japanese had illustrated that with uh, the, the way that they were having suicide runs in planes, that it really gave a picture that the Japanese were willing to fight the last man. And at the same time, there were also civilian hostages from uh, foreign nations who were interned in Japan and would be subject to execution when the Allies invaded the country. Or there was the decision to drop the bomb with all the consequences that wrought for the world. The generation of children growing up in the shadow of nuclear war and the fear of that uh, potentiality. Though many will also uh, point out or assert that the existence of nuclear weapons gave major powers an added incentive to keep the peace and avoid another full-scale war. In conventional warfare, defeat would mean national shame. It would mean a setback in defense programs. But as long as proper precautions were taken, you could always hope to uh, win the next war. The arrival of the atomic age, full-scale war, had the potential potential to mean annihilation. However, uh, you might come down on this question. choice that President Truman had to make is not one that any of us would envy. Well, that will do it for today's episode of The War. We'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net. Uh, this uh, program is provided as a service of the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio, greatdetectives.net. Ken Curlin provides the opening theme music, kencurlin.com. But from Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.